My name is James Coppinger. Welcome to Man Marking. We're asking, where's the talking, lads? You're going to get into, out the game where you put into it, Shelley. Mm-hmm. And I put everything into it I could and still do for the people and for the people that I was playing for and the people that I was manager for. I didn't cheat them out of anything. So I put all my heart and soul to the extent that my family suffered. You regret that at all? Yeah, I I regret it very much, yeah. Somebody said the football's a matter of life and death to you. I said, listen, it's more important than that. Welcome to Man Marking, the podcast that uses football as a vehicle to encourage men to become more comfortable talking about their mental health. Today, we're talking to James Coppinger. Yeah, so obviously my name's James Coppinger. I've been a professional footballer for 23 years since leaving the age of 16 at school. Um, Never, ever wanted, never had any aspirations to become a professional footballer and find myself here at 39, looking to be 40 in January, ready to retire. Um, I played in every division from the Premier League, Championship, League One, League Two and the National League. Um, Gained three promotions, three relegations. Um, And yeah, I've I've sort of, again, a big turning point for me at 21 when I started to develop my mental performance, what I call developing a professional mindset, sort of carved out a, a fantastic, well, fantastic, a good career at Doncaster playing over 650 games and been their their all-time record appearance maker. Joining me via Zoom is the two chaps, the two main guys. It's Anthony and it's Ryan. Ryan, I'm going to come to you first, mate. Nice of you to join us. Thanks, yeah. Yeah, um, wouldn't miss it for the world. (laughs) (laughs) But for anyone who wants to peek behind the curtain, we, uh, we recorded... This, well, we were meant to record this in the morning and Ryan didn't wake up. Yeah. So, yeah, there we go. Me and Danny were just left hanging. We were. I mean, unfortunately, we didn't, hit, we didn't hit record on that Zoom call that we were on this morning because we had an absolutely unreal chat for like an hour about various different things to do with our society and, and solve many no. ills. But no one will ever hear that. Um, Absolutely superb, and it's it's Ryan's fault that, that that's the that's the case, you know. Yeah. So if the quality mm. of this podcast is crap, it's because we used up all of our good content verbally this morning. Um, some yeah, may say, one. "Is that what happens every episode?" I couldn't possibly comment. Um, but yes, that's where we are. Ryan is in the on the naughty step, but we will forgive him <laughs> and hold him close because that's what brothers do. Anyway, on to, <laughs> on to the opening question before we labour the point. Uh, James Coppinger joins us on the show today in his 17th season at Doncaster Rovers and is the only player to reach 500 total appearances for Doncaster. Now, he's not completely a one-club man as he did spend time at Nottingham Forest on loan and he was at Newcastle earlier on in his career. But for all intents and purposes and for... For the you know for the convenience of this question, we're going to call him a one club man. So what I'm going to ask you two chaps is for today's opening question: Who's your favourite one club man? And and I'm going to come to you first. Francesco Totti. Oh, you bastard! I, That's I who I picked to. as well. That's I who I, I picked. <laughs> oh, for God's sake, lads! I don't. <laughs> Jesus, how, how have you done that? Yeah, no, no, Francesco. Yeah, Totti was was obviously with Roma for his all of his career. 
and he was just fantastic, wasn't he? And then yeah. it, towards the end, he just started taking taking a mick by just doing selfies and stuff and on the pitch <laughs> and that. So it was um, it was just it's fantastic. It's just what a footballer. Twenty five seasons he was at Roma. Twenty five seasons. Um, unbelievable, isn't it? Scored three hundred Champions League. Yeah, the Champions League's oldest goal scorer. Phenomenal player. Absolutely phenomenal. Is that who you had as well, right? It was, yeah. And now I'm scrolling down my list and all I can see is Mark Noble now. But uh, <laughs> now, to be fair, I think... <laughs> what, a, what a drop-off. <laughs> I think he... Uh, I think even he had loan spells away. So I'm going to stick with Italians and I'm going to go for Paolo Maldini. Oh, lovely one. Because he was just... An absolute store war, wasn't he? 902 games he played for Milan. That's barbaric, that. And 126 for Italy. You know what? I don't think there is many. I mean, I obviously Googled, not not Totty. I knew Totty was, but I Googled the the one club men. You don't get many. There's not. And, you know, when we think of it, we think of like, oh, Lampard and Gerrard must have done it. And everyone... Seems to forget that Gerard went to America and Lampard ended up at Man City for some reason. And it's just a bit weird now. Even Wayne Rooney went somewhere else and, like, it's just odd. No, the just... best thing about uh, Maldini is he played over four decades and he was a season or two away from playing over five. <laughs> made his debut in, He made his debut in 84 and his last appearance in 2009. <laughs> I was... Um... I was going to say Jamie Curran for a laugh because he played for about 70 clubs. Um, <laughs> still playing as well. Former guest, Jamie Curran. So there we have it. He loves that's, it. Him. I mean, that's, that's, just, that, that, loves it. that's somewhat of an anticlimax really there because we all picked the same person. Uh, but there we go. Let's I, don't think, his... I don't think picking Francesco Totti is an anticlimax. It's just wonderful. Yeah, well, yeah, to be fair, he is the ultimate. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, what a gorgeous man. A gladiator mm. in Rome, which is Absolutely. lovely. Anyway, moving on. On to James Coppinger. James Coppinger is our guest today. And as per usual, Ant, I'm going to come to you and I'm going to ask you, mm-hmm. why did we want to speak to James Coppinger? Which seems, what now I'm saying it, a bit of a silly question because it's quite obvious why we'd want to speak to James Coppinger. But why, for the purposes of Man Mark, and did we want to speak to James Coppinger? Because he's a bloody good footballer and a lovely bloke. <laughs> um, yeah, we originally, um, I believe it was our friend Danny, wasn't it, who, who managed to to get us in touch with him. He did. Am I right in saying that? And then Danny Debrabs. Yeah, we obviously James Coppinger for probably like lower league football fans is quite a, a well known figure. Um, obviously because he's been around for like 17 seasons and obviously because he's very, very good at football. And obviously we wanted to have a little look at why, how it had gone from playing for Newcastle or being at Newcastle to going down the lower leagues and, and the longevity of the man as well. I mean, it's every season he plays football and he's so good at it. Like I always, my lasting memory, and I think this is him, was that goal that Tramia that he scored and he just belted it in the top corner. I think they won one nil. Doncaster were Doncaster play football in such a nice way as well and they always have done. Mm. Um Coppinger's been a massive part of that. That's why we want to speak to him because we you know obviously we want to see what, what life is like at being a footballer like that going for so long. We've spoke to Jamie Curran and who's played for, for ages and ages you mentioned before. And it's just to see what makes the man tick. 
I think, um, as you say, the longevity is is obviously impressive. I think as well for for someone like James because he's spent so long at one club and he's played for that club at three different levels: League Two, League One, and the Championship. He's been promoted and relegated a number of times. I think he's he's the perfect person for us to to kind of have a little bit of a look at. at the changes that he's seen behind the scenes as well in football and the changes in the, the atmosphere and the, the approach to the game. I mean, just to put it into context, he's played 798 career games, right? 94 goals. Almost all of them are for, are for Doncaster. He played six times for, for Forest. Uh, he played for Exeter for, for a couple of seasons as well, uh, Hartlepool and Newcastle. But pretty much about 700 games for Doncaster Rovers, which is just ridiculous. And as you say, Doncaster have always seemed to have played nice football and have always been a good team to watch. And they've largely, for a lot of the time, been in the similar sort of division as Tramir. So we've seen a lot of them. And James Coppinger kind of, you know, he, 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 he exemplifies the way that they play football for someone at that level to play for so long, given his, his style and his... Is he's always been a technical player? Is is incredibly impressive, Ryan? We always have a we always have a theme. Do you wanna do you wanna tell our listeners what this week's theme is? Yeah, absolutely. We we had a few suggestions, but we came up with for me to be happy, I need to be in the team. And I think as you've just touched on there, that that will to want to continue. Uh, that was over seven hundred games certainly comes through. He's, he's not somebody who just wants to sit there and pick up a wage. He's someone who's at his happiest when he's on the football pitch, and we just felt that that theme really summed up him really in a sentence. Yeah, absolutely. So we're now going to pass you over to to the man himself, to James Coppinger, Doncaster legend, and we'll see you on the other side. You're listening to Man Marking. <laughs> This podcast itself is about mental health. It's about uh, men's mental health and mental health within football. Could you give us a, an idea as to why you agreed to do an interview for us, James? Um, I think it's the the perfect platform for creating awareness and a better understanding of what mental health and what mental performance is. Like again, I I own a company that I started four years ago called Pro Mindset, um, based around mental performance. It's it's the it's the standout component in professional football, I believe, that, that defines how successful you can be. Um, but there's not enough done to improve it, to create a better understanding of it so people can actually work and develop it. Um, so when you asked me to come on, I thought, you know what, it's a fantastic opportunity, not just for myself, but the people listening to this, um, to gain a better understanding of what it is, uh, what I believe it is, and how much of a big difference it can make, not just on the pitch, but off the pitch as well. Uh, during an interview with the the EFL website, which I was I was reading earlier on today, which I think was during Mental Health Awareness Week, you mentioned something that you described as a small town mentality had prevented you from taking your chance at the top level. What did you mean by that? I think for me, growing up in a small town called Gisborough, which was near Middlesbrough, um, and, and when I said it prevented me, I think it played a part in me um not believing in myself it's almost like you let you, you you're brought up to believe that this is the be all and end all you're brought up in a bubble and anything outside of gisborough is sort of um yeah you very rarely venture outside of that you're almost conditioned to think that that's your life um the truman show if you like yeah um 
and for me that's how that's how it was you know I, I didn't go abroad on holiday till I was 13 um, my mum my dad um, my granddad my aunties they, we all lived uh, within a stone's throw away from each other um, and I believe sort of Growing up, I, I, when I went for an England trial to Lillyshaw when I was 16, 17, I was in and around lads from London, Manchester, Liverpool. Um, and these lads were having themselves massively in, 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 a, in a positive way. You know, they had confidence, they had belief. Um, they, they knew what they wanted to be. Whereas for me, it was the opposite. I was almost conditioned to think the opposite. You know, you can't achieve this and you can't achieve that. And the people on the telly is these, some sort of these aliens that... Um, but but when I when I sort of started to realise that everybody is a human being and anything's physically possible, um, it doesn't matter where you come from or what your background is. Um, it's about how you think, and um, I started to sort of get rid of them barriers and and again started to sort of um, develop my mental side of the game. Is that something that you you kind of regret, James, or do you just sort of see it as? You know, you were young then, and that's it was just part of your development into kind of the player that you developed into and the person that you've become today. Yeah, I didn't know any different. So at the time, it was it was the norm for me. You know, um, for a lot of people, they grow up and they don't have aspirations to do to do big things. They're quite happy to to go through their lives and and do the same things over and over again. Um, but for me, it wasn't the case. I wasn't. I wasn't that person. I wanted to, to achieve something. I wanted to. I've always been that person that's been inspired. And um, again, I sort of almost had to work it out myself. I almost had to break through them barriers and find it out myself. I didn't have that sort of support network around me, sort of guiding me, um, because nobody around me had ever experienced anything like that. I moved to Newcastle for one point eight million at seventeen years old, and my family had never been anywhere close to something like that. So they never really knew what was best for me. I had no sort of person guiding me and showing me the way. Um, so again, I had to work it out by myself. I had to make, I had to learn by making mistakes. Did that, um, did the price tag, did, did you kind of have pressure that came from that as well, James? Was that something you were kind of, because I mean, it, at, at that time when you moved, which was, you know, like 20 years ago and, and, at 17 for even somebody moving 17 now for that amount of money is a, a big deal did you feel the pressure of that i didn't really feel the pressure because again i was sort of young and naive and i was just playing football again it had it had its pros and its cons but my dad used to say to me look do you realize this the situation or the position that you're in and i never ever did you know i went to training i came home and i still sort of knocked about my mates. I still went down the park and played football. This is me at 17 at a Premier League club. I still played five-a-side with my mates at, at the at the gym where we'd always played. And, um, you know, it never it never affected me. It never sort of bothered me when it actually should have. You know, I should have taken things a lot serious, a lot more serious. Um, and I think that, that was obviously down to that mentality. You know, although I've got this move, I'm still doing the things that I was doing when I wasn't there. Yeah. And 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 after you you eventually joined Doncaster, I was reading that Dave Penny introduced you to a, a behaviourist called Terry Gormley to try and work on your performances. I think David obviously identified that you were someone with with the talent to to make it at that level and and, and 
be a good player for him. But maybe there was, as you say, some mentality stuff you might need to develop. First of all, then, who's who is Terry Gormley and, and what was his role as a behaviourist? So Terry's background was um, in NLP, so Neuro Linguistic Programming. Um, and a behaviourist is somebody very much like a psychologist, um, somebody who sort of works with the mental side of the game and tries to improve um sort of your performance and back then dave penny i don't think was a big believer in this thing i think terry tells me the story of him walking into dave's office and dave went look you've got five minutes to prove to me that this works um because i don't believe in this um so terry picked his stuff out and walked and went to walk out and he was like well what, what are you doing he went well you've asked me to come in and now you're telling me that you don't believe in this um he said, well, well, the thing he said, well, I've got this one player, James Coppinger, who just signed. Um, he's unbelievable in training every single day. But when it comes to a game, you just can't replicate it. Um, and if you can start with him and show me that it works for him, um, then I'll then I'll buy into it. And that first session went down the, the old Bellevue ground at, at Doncaster. And I just turned up not knowing what was happening, what, what to expect. And within that first session, I changed my life. Um, both on and off the pitch. We had Man City in the Carling Cup the night that night, so it was it was in the morning, and then I went through sort of visualization with different bits and pieces. I hadn't scored a goal for Doncaster at this point, um, and it went to penalties, and I st I stepped up for the per first penalty against David James, um, and we'd actually gone through this with Terry um because before that i would never even uh, put my hand up to take a penalty mm. um i put the ball down did everything that i'd done in the boardroom and everything and, and slotted the penalty sent david james the wrong way um so from that moment on things changed for me on and off the pitch i worked with terry still working with terry today um, in different bits and pieces um but again sort of it was just a huge turning point in my career and in my life and did did Terry stay on then with the club? I assume that that kind of convinced Dave Penny of of his worthwhileness. It did, but at the same time, he worked with with different players that had really good success. The, the club had really good success, but again, like a lot of things related to mental performance, mental health, um, psychology, whatever you want to call it, clubs are so sceptical um, and they don't want to pay for it. They don't because it's not tangible because you can't see it mm. um people are so reluctant to pay and the people that are doing this you know they they value what they do they value the the sort of uh service that they offer um and it was the same with terry um so he moved into business he moved into to probably the places where this is valued more than football mm. i uh i was hoping you were going to say that terry won him over and that he was hired full time, and I was going to do it in for a penny, in for a pound joke, but I, I, <laughs> it didn't transpire, unfortunately. <laughs> it, 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 I, I was I, I, in the same article. You you mentioned that you were having some some sort of some troubles and so, some issues with your sort of mental health at the time. How did they kind of manifest themselves? Um, yeah, go back to my mum and dad divorced at seventeen. So I sat when I, when I signed for Newcastle. My mum and dad divorced. Um, I grew up in a in a in a sort of loving family. We did everything together. Um, not one point, uh, not at one point, did I think that my mum and dad were, were going to get split up and 
um, things would change. And my mum got us in the living room, me and my sister and my dad, and said, look, I'm, I'm leaving. Um, and it was as cutthroat and as brutal as that. And the next day she was gone. Like, And for me personally, I, I, I didn't deal with it. I didn't cope with it. I thought that I'd, I'd dealt with it, but on a personal note, I just couldn't handle it. Um, so I I signed for Newcastle. I was going through this off the pitch. Every time I went home, mum wasn't there. Um, I ended up moving out when I was 18, um, buying a house. And that was me done. Like we never, I never ever had a family home to go back to wherever I was. And when I was coming back, it was never, I never had that. You know, I had grown up with that feeling of a family place to go to and that, that had been gone completely. Um, and then on top of that, I lost my granddad to cancer at 20. Um, the guy that that was my hero, that believed in me, that took me everywhere as a kid. Um, he diagnosed cancer and within six months he'd passed away. I, I sort of saw him every single day deteriorate um, to the point where I was at his house, at his bedside when he passed away. Um, which again was, was something I never dealt with. I moved to Exeter, nobody around me, and got relegated out of the football league in the first season there. I was drinking, um, doing things for the first time, experiencing things for the first time. And it just escalated, you know, I, I didn't speak to anybody. I didn't sort of deal with it. I didn't didn't have the understanding of how to deal with it. Um, and then obviously met Terry and it combinated with dealing with that and working on my mental performance that, that changed everything for me really. So that process of working with Terry, did did that involve talking about the sort of off the field stuff that you were going through as well? I mean, there's sort of numerous things that you've kind of listed there, at, at, you know, as a young person, especially given the flux that was going on in your life, you know, moving around and that sort of thing must have been like really, really tough. Was that a part of the, the process that you did with Terry was to talk about that type of thing as well? Yeah, so I first session I broke down. Um, just he he sort of worked with me talking about my granddad and like he he almost took me out of out of out of my body and and made me look at myself and and say look like talk about what what my granddad would be saying about me right now. Um, looking at James, what does he see? And you know it was a huge eye opener for me because I was obviously looking at myself. So I stood up and looked at the chair and there was nobody there, but he was like, imagine you're there and and tell me what your granddad sees, James. And I just looked at myself and I just couldn't believe where I was, like what had happened, where i come from. You know, I made my Premier League debut at 19, partnered on a Shearer up front and like I was now sort of just got relegated out of the Football League and I was I was struggling. I didn't, I didn't want to continue playing football and like everything just came out in that one session um and it was almost like a massive lift off my shoulders you know it was something that that i'd been carrying around for for years and it was almost my mind was clear and now i could focus on all the things that i wanted to do and how i wanted to live my life and it was a huge transition um, but it was instantaneous it was i remember getting home that that night and sitting on the, the kitchen sort of worktop and saying to my wife look things have changed like oh like literally like instant like tomorrow's like everything's going to change for me like I actually said that to her and I remember how vivid it was um and I've not looked back since that day you know 18 19 years at, at one football club playing averaging 42 games every season for 18 seasons 
um, and all the things I listed at the start of this podcast. So, yeah, it was it was a huge turning point for me. Yeah, that's. I mean, there's there's a lot of credit that's got to go to you there, especially as you know, as 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 someone in that position to to kind of look those things in the eye and and, and tackle them head on that you've you, you know that, that you've done with that that process with Terry there. Do you think that was something a time in your life that may would have been maybe would have been easier to deal with or maybe stuff would have happened quicker if it was an environment that was more open to mental health? I do, yeah. I think I think if I could have accessed things that, that were accessible now, um, that's why I'm mentoring, that's why I'm doing what I did, that's why I started my company. Um, because I believe that I can help and create, again, a better understanding of what this is. This is something that people go through every single day. And I waited three, four years to get this out. Um, you know, we, 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 we experience things every single day. We, we make decisions on our thinking every single day. Um, and all this is, is learning to control your thinking, learning to put yourself in, in the best possible position every single day. And it's not something that happens um, every now and again. We, we're dealing with it every day. Um, and I just think if people understand and, and didn't make this big thing about it in terms of what it actually is, I think it would be easier for everybody to to improve. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, it does. I think it, it it's in a way because we spoke with someone once and we were talking about how maybe t people don't ask questions because they're a little bit afraid of what the answers might be. And then that makes the whole thing feel more daunting than it needs to be for a lot of people. And, and you know, it should be created an environment that allows people to, you know, air, the, air whatever they're feeling, kind of big or small. And, and that should help the whole you know the whole gamut of, of those emotions you talked about the stuff that you're doing with with terry at the moment which is a pro mindset when did that kind of start and, and what is it that you that you do with that yeah so we started with terry but terry is not a part of it anymore um i've gone on I've, I've taken it by myself working with clubs working with um the lfe which is the league football education um around mental performance about what mental performance is again learning to control your thinking every single day as a player um learning how to get into the best possible state of mind um to give yourself the best opportunity you know football is a short career and you have to understand that you have to take 100 percent ownership of everything that you do every decision that's made is based or comes from you um and you know the majority of, of clubs and players that I speak to, there's so there's so much of a lack of understanding around what it actually is. Um, it's about having a clear focus and direction. So, so many players that I see actually play football, but they don't know where they're going. And I always say to them, look, how, how are you expected to get somewhere if you don't know where you're going? Um, you know, you need to have a clear direction of where you want to go in your football career, in your life, because then you can you can have a purpose, then you can work towards things you have a better motivation working towards things. I use an example of, I wanted to play till I'm 40. I set that target 15 years ago um, and I'm 40 in January um, and I'm retiring because I want to retire, not because somebody's telling me to retire. Yeah. Um, I got promoted with Doncaster, Captain Doncaster to pro promotion at 36. Um, but that wasn't out of out of luck i my granddad my other granddad passed away at 36 and the contrasts between the two how i dealt with them was i used his life as a motivation 
So he was a big Middlesbrough fan and Middlesbrough got re- promoted to the Premier League and Doncaster got relegated to League Two. And I went to see him in hospital and I bought him the new Middlesbrough shirt and I said to him, look, we're going to get promoted next season. Um, and a couple of days later, he passed away. Um, so I used that as a motivation to go, you know what, I'm, I'm, I've, I've said that to my granddad, I'm going to get promoted. I'm going to get Doncaster promoted next season. Um, and this is how I'm going to do it. So I wrote down, I'm going to score 10 goals. I'm going to get 15 assists. I'm going to get in team of the season. I'm going to get player of the season and I'm going to get promoted. And every single one of them things came true. I scored 10 goals exactly. I got over 15 assists. I got in uh, the PFA team of the season. I got nominated for player of the se- PFA player of the season. I got player of the season for Doncaster and we got promoted. Um, and I drove in every single day to training with that in mind. You know, I played a specific song every single day. Um, and these are the things that you need to do, you know, form strategies, do things that work for you. Um, and these are the things that I'm trying to introduce and trying to develop with with other players as well. And how's that? How's that been going? It's been going really, really well. I worked with um, the Scottish Premier League team yesterday. Did a presentation with their first team, um, and it was unbelievable. The response, the sort of the take on on what I was actually doing. It's daunting for people, you know, coming on a Zoom session. Um, it's the last thing players want to do to an extent, but understanding at the end of that session that the lads are like, oh my God, this was unbelievable. You know, learning and developing and learning that they're accountable. You know, mental performance, play, I believe, plays between 50 and 75% of, of your career. It feeds into your technical, tactical and physical game. Um, it's the foundation for everything, everything that you do, but yet there's nobody or very few people developing their mental performance. And it's absolutely amazing when I say that to people that they like, oh my God, yeah. And are you actually developing it? Well, no, I'm not. So then you try try and implement and, and influence them and go, you know what? I'm not the only person doing this. And you can access podcasts like this. You can a- access um, audio books. You can go and read. You can go on courses. You can develop like things to improve you, personal development. Become the best person that you can become, whether that's, be 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 a player whether that be a husband whether that be a father whether that be a friend like it's a short life you know i I have lost people and i have used it in the right way i've used it as a motivation to help other people yeah you you, you're spot on there we had a a conversation last night on something we were doing about you know football clubs developing the the person developing people as much as developing footballers and and i think you that feeds into that to kind of if you can be the best version of you, then you'll be the, the best footballer that you can be as well. And one of the things that we kind of talk about around that, and, and you seem to have quite a good grip, James, of the sort of differences between the mental health side of things and the mentality side of things in terms of getting your focus right. And and that seems to be some of the work that obviously you did with Terry when you were younger. Do you think one of the issues in football might be that they kind of mash the two things together and and don't give them the respect that they deserve as two separate subjects. One hundred percent. And when I talk about mental performance, people talk to me about mental health, and I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa! You're missing, you're missing what I'm saying. You know, again, what you're saying is they're two separate things. So mental health is something that um, almost goes on off the pitch. I say that they're sort of separate, but they they intertwine, you know, mm. your mental health can affect your mental performance, 
But I believe if you get your mental performance right, you'll have a better mental health. Um, so they they do they do they do have very similar very similar traits. Um, but I'm talking about improving your performance, putting strategies together that can actually improve what you do every single day. Um, so there's definitely a, a misconception of what it is, but people have created a stigma to mental health. Um, I do understand the severity of it and how serious it can get. And when we spoke about it just then about every single day doing certain things to improve, um, I feel like, why would you not want to be able to control your thinking to feel better about yourself? And that's all it is. You know, when you break it down, like there's so many different things, there's so many different nuggets, there's so many different strategies, techniques that you can use every single day to make you feel better. So why would you not want to go out and, and, and learn that? And I think for me personally, it should be in schools, you know, it should be a part of um, the syllabus that you learn about how you think. You learn about the way you think every single day affects how you feel and then how you feel affects your actions and then your actions affect your results. I think that should be that should be taught to every single kid at 14, 15. Um, and it's something that I'm trying to implement within academies that... 14, 15, 16, there's a little taster of what mental performance is. And then 16, 17, 18, it just gets ramped up to, right, this is this is what it's about because coaches and managers are all looking for consistency and people with strong characters, mentalities. That's the one thing that whenever you speak to a manager, that's the first thing that they want. You know, if you haven't got that, you will not progress in professional football. You will not go on to have a strong, illustrious career. Um, but how can you expect to do that when you're not working on it? Yeah, absolutely. And I think one thing that you said there about how the two things, they do intertwine massively in terms of, you know, if you if you improve on your mental health, it should help with your performance on the pitch and vice versa. You know, once you, you know, they, they are in a place where you're doing the thing that you love and you're getting the, the satisfaction out of it, that'll help with things like self-esteem, identity and that sort of thing. I read something where you'd said that as a sort of senior player at Doncaster and you've always had like a, a, a bit of an open door policy for, for younger players to sort of come and talk or confide in you about, you know, issues that they might be having. Do you see that as kind of a, you know, like a, a crucial part of your role as a, as a senior player? I think that's been my role um, since I started to develop this. You know, I affect people unconsciously without them actually knowing it um, every single day with my actions and how I conduct myself. And I'm not speaking about sort of, I'm not trying to big myself up, but I'm conscious that I have a responsibility that, you know, as a senior player, that you need to to lead by example, especially being captain as well. Um, but at the same time, I've had conversations with players from 17 to 32, 33, talking about mental performance and mental health. Um, I've spoke to people, not just in, in the football, but off the pitch that are associated with Doncaster. Um, and I've had calls from people that I don't even know around mental health um, because because I'm a, obviously part of the Kaleidoscope Plus group as well, um, a mental health charity. So... There's so many different sort of facets to it, but I enjoy it. You know, I enjoy I enjoy helping, making a difference, and helping people understand more about it, and and helping people help themselves. I think that's the biggest thing. Like I can only do so much, 
I can only show them and, and teach them what I've been taught. Um, and at the same time, it's then down to them to do it. Terry Gormley, on my first session, did things with me that wouldn't have worked if I wasn't open to it. So it's down to the individual, like I say, right from the beginning, you're 100% accountable for everything that you do. Um, but I do get a lot of satisfaction out of helping other people. That's why um, I'm doing what I do. Uh, absolutely. And in terms of the, the players that come and talk to you, what are the sort of, is there anything that, that comes up quite a lot of the kind of regular discussion points that come up from, from different players? I think disappointment. I think um, dealing with disappointment on a, on a day-to-day basis um, is, is tough. You know, you're under the microscope every single day. You're trying to get in the team. You're, you're, you're playing against somebody else. Um, if you're not in the team, how do you deal with it? Who do you look at? Who do you blame? Um, and performing consistently every single week, um, it, it's so it's so difficult if you don't know how, if, you, if you're not putting things in place and your career doesn't last very long. Um, but outside of football, just general things that people struggle with. Um, some of them actually really, really small, but end up being really, really big. Um, but on a personal level, it's about, again, sharing my experiences. If I think there's somebody who, who who's out of my remit, I spoke to somebody recently that I thought, you know what, I can't help this person because it's a little bit too much. I'm, I don't really understand or it's almost on a different scale. So that's why I put them in touch with, with KPG um, and they obviously took that person off me and, and then they deal with that person and, and try and help them. And um, it's such a fantastic sort of, uh, group that's doing amazing things within mental health. And I saw, um, I came across a tweet that you did back in, in 2018 where you were talking about, uh, I think it was in response to one of the, it might have been Mind or Calm or something, you were asking something about mental health. And you were saying about not being afraid of anxiety, but being aware of what it feels like and then understanding how to, to cope and deal with it, which is sort of what you've touched on there about you know, let, teaching people to help themselves almost. Now that you're kind of older and and and, and fingers crossed, wiser, James. How do you? Um, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You've always got to be a. Uh, yeah, it's ne- <laughs> never always wiser. I know some people in there uh, who are um, who are uh, in their forties who are definitely not wiser than they were when they were younger. <laughs> um, how do you? How do you now deal with anything that comes up that causes you any anxiety or similar issues? Yeah, I've had I've had anxiety attacks in the past, um, and I said that because, like, if you if you almost not expect it, but if all, if you almost know what creates it and understand why you get into them positions, um, then it's easier to, in my opinion, sort of limit the amount of attacks you have or the amount of anxiety you get. So my mum and dad. Um, my my nana and granddad they they suffered or more so my mum and my nana suffered from anxiety and um, it's almost like you know it's almost expected um, and and I I don't believe it's it's something that you inherit I think it's 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 your thinking the anxiety attacks that I've had have always based around fear um, fear of I remember I was injured once and I didn't think I was going to get back and I just I just kept worrying and worrying and worrying and almost thought myself into an anxiety attack um one was on a plane once when uh, we were traveling from manchester to singapore 
and I had my kids with me and we had turbulence and and for some reason I was like I thought the plane I was thought myself into the plane was going to crash um but it's like once I realized you know why I was doing it and how I was doing it I, I can't remember the last time I had anything like that um and I understood how to deal with it and how to cope with it um, and I understood it was that you know I understood it was anxiety I understood it was that and it will go away and it's a matter of just coping with it at the time um and again not not to not to think that I'm any weirdo that this has just happened to me and that I should be worried it, it, it's part of life you know I believe everybody experiences mental health at some stage of their life um and understanding that that's going to happen and, and going you know what it's going to happen to me and when it does I'm going to know how to deal with it is the best way of dealing with it in my opinion yeah, it's quite interesting you say that, James. Uh, Neville Southall said something similar when we spoke to him that when you when you have a panic attack, it's not trying to convince yourself not to have a panic attack. It's almost to go with the waves of having a panic attack and and to to realise for the next ten minutes you're going to feel uncomfortable and try and ease yourself through it. Appreciate that's not always easy to do when you're in the midst of it. But I thought it was quite interesting that his sort of attitude towards it was you can't avoid it forever so when it does happen you've got to set, set yourself coping mechanisms to get through it um what what i wanted to ask you is how much importance do you put mentality down to your longevity within the game it's 100 percent the reason i'm still playing um it's the reason i've gone on to do what i've what i've done in my opinion um again playing 42 averaging 42 games every season for 18 18, 19 seasons, you know, I, I almost, again, I go, right, for me, happiness is my motivation, is my main motivation. So to be happy is my main motivation. So for me to be happy, I need to be in the team every single week because I enjoy playing football. So for me to be in the team, I need to be at it every single day. And if I'm not at it, if I'm not training at my maximum, then I'm not going to be in the team. And then I'm not going to be happy. So I almost put a strategy in place that goes, look, I want to be playing every week. That does that, that does that, that takes care of that. And and I said I said this, I think it was a couple of days ago, after lockdown, after five months of lockdown, went back to training for pre-season. I'm 39 and I'm thinking, I'm going to struggle here. Um, you know, people are sort of going to question whether I can still do it. And I walked onto the training pitch with them sort of thoughts in my mind and something just took over me. Um, I believe it's something that I've, I've, I've created over the years because I've been doing it day, day after day, year after year. Um, I've created this thing that I call a professional mindset that when things get tough, I can almost draw on these things unconsciously and it makes me just do it. It makes me just go out and actually physically do it. Um, and that's all down to my mental performance. That's all down to me creating this thing that that almost is bigger than any any other attribute that I've got. Um, so yeah, it's 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 one hundred percent the reason why I'm still playing. And if you look at the football league and and how often players move around from club to club, I think earlier in not well a few years back you had a, a stint at Forest, and you don't think you turned it permanently. Was that down to not getting enough game time, and therefore? not being happy enough in at the club the time Doncaster um had got relegated and I was one of the biggest earners at the club um 
I always knew that I was going to go back. So it was just to get me off the wage bill and they brought in two or three other players. Um, it was a fantastic experience for me because as I mentioned to you there, I supported Forrest as a, as a young kid and to actually play a few games for Forrest, I played against Leeds, started at Ellen Road um, and played at the city ground against Hull. It was just a, an unbelievable experience for me to to see where they were, where that club was and how that was run at that sort of level. Um, and it was an eye-opener for me because when I wasn't playing, I had to, again, develop new strategies to deal with not playing, um, to deal with disappointment, to deal with, although I thought I should be playing, um, the politics of, of football. Um, but in the back of my mind, knowing that I was going back to Doncaster in the January, um, and then subsequently we went on to to win the league and I scored the winning goal at Brentford. Yeah, I remember that one. That was a bit of a classic, that, wasn't it? Sad with the missed penalty first. Yeah. And you um, went down the other end. Marcel Trotter, yeah, and, and I yeah. went down and tapped it in, yeah. Yeah, it was unbelievable. Um, do you think then, because you've stayed at Doncaster for such a long time, that's also helped as well? Because it's obviously quite a nomadic lifestyle, isn't it? Being a footballer and it can be very turbulent. And not only are you moving, but often you're moving your family. Uh, you're moving to a new area, you're buying a new house, putting your kids in a new school. It's probably not as glamorous as football fans make out it is. Um, do you think that's helped you being... I know you're not a one-club man, but you've been at Doncaster for such a long time. Yeah, I think I think, but I that's because of me. I've 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 almost Doncaster matched my ambition. So we got promoted to the championship when I was 27, 28. Um, up until that point, I was still sort of carving out a career, um, finding my way. I spent three or four years in the championship. Um, I signed a three-year contract at 30 that got me to 33, um, and then I signed a two-year contract that got me to 34, 35. And then every year after that, it's been one year. But um, I've had opportunities to move. I've had opportunities to move for more money, um, bigger clubs. Um, but I haven't actually done it because I've always been happy at Doncaster. You know, I've had frustrating seasons. Um, but at the same time, I felt like my my off-the-field life has been really, really happy. And I value that as much as I value my football in life because I, I understand that to get the best out of myself, I need to be happy happy off the pitch. And the grass isn't always greener. Um, don't get me wrong, I, I want to play football, I want to earn money, but I don't want to earn money before my happiness. And again, that sounds corny and all the rest of it, but that's how I've worked throughout my career. Um, and I've, I've managed, in my opinion, to to manage the two quite, quite well. That's actually going to bring me on to my next point. It does seem that a lot of careers are lost to chasing a move before they've even really had a career, uh, especially with some young lads who might put in a, a good performance here and there and have an agent that's pushing for them to move. And as you said, put your happiness first and the rest more likely to follow, you would imagine. You obviously made your debut in the 90s. We're still talking to you now as a professional footballer in 2020, so over four decades of, of playing. What are the sort of changes you've seen in football with regards to mental health? Do you think we're trending in the right direction? I think we are trending in the right direction, but I, I still think there should be more done. Um, I've really enjoyed over the last two, three months, as I'm, I'm understanding that I'm transitioning from football next season, um, 
trying to communicate mental performance in the right way because in my opinion like everything how you communicate things is the biggest is the biggest um is what you have to do to to get a buy-in i think there's so many people doing it in the wrong way and i don't mean that in a in a in a, in a bad way because they're doing it for the right reasons but football is a different it's sort of a candid industry a closed book when it comes to things like this um again because you can't measure it because you can't see it because it's not tangible um people are reluctant to do it and if you want to go out and, and practice your shooting you go out on the training pitch and you smash some balls into the net headings the same if you want to build your muscles up you go in the gym um but if you want to actually improve your mental performance what do you actually do nobody actually knows um so again communicating in this this the right way and creating this sort of understanding of what it is and how to do it is is something that i've really enjoyed doing um and, and like you said doing sort of zoom sessions and working with individual players i found that the way that i'm going about it is try is starting to get a better buy-in from people do you think in terms of players there is a reluctancy to put the hand up and ask for help because it's perceived weakness in what is a, a very competitive environment? I think I think depending on what football club you're at, I think that's that's the case. I think if you're in an environment, a learning environment, I genuinely believe that it should be part of your learning. Um, so again, I've 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 spoke to various clubs and one club in liverpool and it this this is at the forefront of everything that they do um and it's no surprise that from the first team down to the academy they're they're flying in terms of success in terms of um selling on players in terms of everything really um so it's refreshing when i hear that um but you look at other clubs dependent on what your club is like depends on whether you think it's a weakness if your manager doesn't believe in this or you get the impression that your manager doesn't believe in this or your coach doesn't believe in this then if you put your hand up and say i'm struggling or how can i do this or how can i do that then you're not going to believe that that you're going to be playing or you're going to have a fair crack at the whip um that's what i think as a young lad that's what you would think but for me personally it's about if that's the case and you're not in a learning environment it's about going to find outside sources people that you can speak to outside of football um things that you can access like i said before podcasts we can access so much information now that can help us um i believe that, that that's that's the way forward i mean i'm putting a website together at the minute for pro mindset and it's it's again really enjoyable because it's going to be something that people can go on to and, and view other people doing this and getting success and learning how to do it and learning that it's it's normal to do this you know you don't have to have a problem to work on your mental performance you should be doing it every single day um and it's not something that gives you this three percent extra it gives you like 30 40 50 percent um so again i genuinely believe that that players will start to buy into it and i think in the next five ten years i think this this will just take off yeah, definitely. It seems to be something that they do over in the States quite a lot as well. Um, and we always tend to be a little bit 10, 15 years behind them on, on their development in sports. But I know in the NFL, they do a lot of stuff around mindset and um, working on the players as, as a team as well. Um, you played with David Cottrell for a few seasons. He's been very vocal about his mental health issues. How powerful can it be for footballers to open up about, about these topics as well? yeah i think it can i think spoke with uh used to room with cots um when he was at doncaster and 
I was aware of things that were going on in his life on and off the pitch. And I think he, and I'm not going to speak out of turn, but I think he used football as, a, as an escape. I think he spoke about it, that when he went out of the pitch, he could almost forget about all the things that were going on in his life. Um, and it's, it's, really, it's really amazing to hear people talking about that um, and what they're going through. Um, it almost, in my opinion, gives, gives inspiration to other players to potentially come out and, and seek help. Um, I think again, it's not easy. It was, hasn't. It hasn't been an easy transition for him. I've spoke to him on numerous occasions, and um, he's doing a fantastic job with his foundation and making a huge difference to to other people's lives as well. And you often hear of players falling out of love with the game. Um, suppose this is sort of two questions in one. Firstly, why do you think that is, and and how have you maintained your own love of the game? I genuinely feel people fall out of the love of the game for a few reasons. I think I think financial gain is is one. They get to an age where they can't justify um, getting the contract that they've been offered. Maybe they've been in the Premier League or the Championship and they've earned really good money and they come down the leagues and there's just not that that financial contract for them. Um, a lot of players can't handle coming down the leagues because. They've played their, they've played most of their career at a high a high level, um, playing in really good stadiums, um, really good facilities, and they just can't deal with with what the lower leagues offer them. Um, and I think for me personally, that's never been the case. Like I, I just enjoy playing football, um, whether it's in the garden with my kids, whether it's with my mates, or whether it's playing at Wembley or the Millennium Stadium. Um, I get as much enjoyment out of out of out of wherever I'm playing and that's why I'm still playing. I wake up every day and appreciate now more than I ever have done what, what I do. I absolutely love it every single day. But that's a conscious decision from me, you know, again going back to mental performance. But I make that decision to to think like that. Um it's very rare that I go into training ever and think that I can't be asked with this. Um I absolutely love what I do. Um and that's again the reason why I'm still playing. You seem very focused and decisive and very target-driven. Do you find it easy to switch off from being a professional footballer or is it something that would consume you all the time? So eating habits, your routines, sleep patterns, all those things? No, I find it really, really um, easy to switch off. And again, I've, I've, I've formed that strategy as well because when I was younger, I didn't. Um, I'd train and then... Whatever whatever happened in training, whether it was good or bad, I'd take it home with me. Um, you know, if it was good, I thought I was the best thing ever. I'd go home and give it the big in and I'd be cocky. And and then if, if I'd had a bad training session, I'd go home and I'd take it out on my, on my wife or the kids. To be fair, it, it, it hasn't been since I've had kids, but I used to take it with my wife and people that I was speaking to and I used to like sulk and... Um, but I've, underst I've, I've, I've made a conscious decision or I made a conscious decision to to segregate the two. So uh, as soon as I leave the training ground, so as soon as I literally drive out the gates, then I almost switch into a different mode where I leave all that at the training ground. Um, there's, there's parts of it that, that I will look at analysing games and bits and pieces, but um, I've sort of, again, put, put things in place to deal with that. Um, also after games, so I have like a 24-hour rule where regardless of, of how I've played, um, whether I've scored a hat trick or whether I've I've scored an own goal and had a stinker, um, I've got 24 hours to either be on top of the world or feel sorry for myself. And then after then 24 hours, I'm back to 
back to that that game's gone it's in the bin and i'm moving forward and focusing on the next game um and these are the type of strategies that that i try and teach other people and and sort of implement within other people's sort of mindsets because for me it's changed again allowed me to be consistent and and perform uh, at a better level really in terms of yourself it seems like you've got a very good grasp on your attitude and, and your outlook towards it and now you're very focused on helping others and, and training them to to train the brain almost it sounds like so what what would you do if you had somebody who came to you who was saying oh, i struggle to focus or if i miss a chance i can't stop thinking about it i struggle to sleep what's your first protocol to help them because it's probably harder to teach someone to do something mentally than it is physically isn't it you can teach someone form how to pick up a weight how to run but it's quite hard to teach someone to think differently it is quite hard to think it is quite hard to teach people to think differently but at the same time that's the only way that things are going to change for them a lot of people always a lot of people keep doing the same things over and over again and expect a different result which is what i did for years and years and years I just kept doing the same things and thinking, oh, I hope this changes for me. Um, but for me, it, it comes from you. You know, you have to speak to the individual, work out why they're thinking the way they're thinking, um, break it down, implement different bits and pieces in their makeup, almost create a better understanding of, of what it's about, but also explain to them you know like when i say you can you've got every day is a new day to to learn to improve your mental performance and mental health it's about trying different things like so many people are led to believe that these sort of things don't work like what you just said to me there it's hard it's hard to make people think differently but i don't believe it is <laughs> so if you think it's hard to think differently then guess what's going to happen you're not going to be able to do it or you're going to find it hard whereas i think i tell people it's easy to think differently so then they've got a better understanding of, you know what, this is quite easy to think differently. So then they start thinking differently um, instantaneously. And I know that sounds, again, quite easy, but that's how it works. You know, we make decisions every single day on our thinking. Um, so why not think in the right way or in a better way that gets you better results? Yeah, yeah, most definitely. And you mentioned before being in your final season, you'll be retiring next year. It doesn't strike me as you'd ever retire unless you had a plan. But do you have any worries or anxieties about retirement or do you just see it as the next stage in your life and you know what you want to do? Um, I did, you know, I did have anxieties about about quitting and stopping. And I said I set a goal that I wanted to play until I was 40. Um, and I spoke about having sort of an anxiety attack when I got injured and thought, you know what, I'm not going to be able to come back from this. Uh, probably about 30, 31. Um, but I've always sort of maintained this understanding that it's going to end one day. And when it does, I'm going to have something to fall back onto. I'm going to have something that I want to want to do. I've enjoyed over 23 years playing football. I've absolutely loved, I won't say every minute of it, but I've, I've loved what I do. Um, and I want to do something moving forward that I, where I get the same enjoyment and helping other people and creating sort of, a better understanding of what 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 sort of or how your your mental performance can improve your career is something that I really enjoy. It's the same. I get the same buzz from from helping other people than I do playing football. Um, so moving forward for me, there's no real anxiety or worry about 
what's going to happen because it's on my terms. You know, I, I'm choosing to retire. I feel fitness-wise, I feel as good as I've ever felt. Um, I've played four or five games a season already. I'm training every day, not miss one day of pre-season, not miss one day of training. Um, but it has to end somewhere. You know, I, I'd rather end, I'd rather end on a high than be clinging on and, and sort of just been there for the sake of being there. Yeah. And and do you get offered much support when people realise that you're retiring or you're coming out of the game? Is there things set up there for you to to use or utilise, whether it be educational or financial or whatever it may be? I think there is. I think the PFA um, put on transitional courses and there's things you can access within the PFA. Um, and it's, it's becoming more prevalent within um, the clubs that, you know, when you are getting to that age, that there are things that you can access. And depending on what sort of career you've had, you know, I would be advising players probably below the Premier League to be thinking about something that they really enjoy, you know, in their late 20s, in their early 20s, whenever they see fit, you know, doing doing things after training um, to sort of sh almost shift their focus, you know, like we spoke about, is football absorbing you? Is it everything that you do? For some people it is and, and it becomes an obsession and that's why players play at the highest level. Um, but for a lot of people, it's a little bit different. So they do go and experiment in different things, different areas. You see a lot of players starting up businesses. Um, I think I think transitioning in from football now is a lot different than, than what it was. You know, go back 10, 20 years, I think it was harder for players to finish then than it is now. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And you've had a long and successful career and seen a lot of change yourself. Is there a positive change that sticks out that you've seen over the years or a, a change for the worst? Is there anything that happens now that didn't used to happen when you first came through that you think, yeah, th th this is good that we're now doing it? Or do you think it's more just club by club? I think it's club by club, but at the same time, I think we have got better talking about um the mental side of the game but it's all right talking about it it's actually doing it that that i think needs to improve i think i talk about technical tactical physical when i when i first started playing tactical you you used to everyone played 442 you used to get the ball wide cross it and, and score a goal um now tactically you have to understand more as a player you have to understand where you need to be off the pitch we have analysts we go through um, and this is at League One level, you go through opposition, you go through what their strengths are, what their weaknesses are, um, What if they play this formation, we have to go into this formation. Um, physically, people are getting stronger and fitter and faster, um, eating healthier. Um, and technically, again, you need to be at the top of your game, but the mental, the mental side of the game controls all of them. You know, it feeds into every single facet of, of, of you as a player. Um, so, in my opinion, there needs to be more done around that. Um, although we're starting to move in the right area, and clubs need to be, or clubs, or or maybe the EFL or the Premier League need to be paying more money into into that sort of thing. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed James Coppinger's interview there. I've still got Ant, and I've still got Ryan with me, lads. I wondered if I'd pass it over to you for a for a, a few a few questions, a few opinions on that interview, Ryan. It was. You and I, who, who did it one, I think it was one Wednesday evening, a few months, a few weeks, a few months back. 
And one yeah. of the things that I kind of wondered about on reflection, again, I haven't listened to it back since then, was I wonder how different James's life might have turned out to be had he not met Terry, the behaviourist, when he was so young. And perhaps how many other players might be lost to the game that could have benefited from something like that, which goes back to a lot of the conversations we've had previously. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a good point. Um, we've talked about it a lot when people at a young stage of their life don't have that sense of direction or we've got quite a few un- unanswered questions that they probably need some professional guidance and then how to deal with them emotions and what they're feeling. And I think fortunately for for James, he, he met Terry, as you mentioned, and I think it had a, a lasting effect on him. And he spoke quite a lot about mentality, um, something that he's took into the later years of his life and something that I think he's actually working on for sort of when he retires from football and what he wants to do post-football. Um, so I think when you talk about influences, it's something that certainly influenced him and it probably massively helped him prolong his career for as long as he did. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's, it's. I mean, we've had quite a few people who've, you know, come through academies and had difficult times and uh, our, one of our very recent episodes with Jordan Cranston, Jordan talked quite extensively about, about that and, and as well with um, Matt Piper for, for various reasons who we've had on previously. And I think that's, that influence for, for James was clearly massive for him to be able to sort of maybe sort of compartmentalise a lot of those difficulties that he was having with his own mental health at the time that was impacting his ability to be able to to perform at his best on the pitch. And you were, you were talking before the interview about how good a player James is, particularly at, at, at the level that he's operated at, sort of League One, League Two Championship. He's, he's always been, it's certainly a, a probably League One and League Two, he's always been a cut above. And he's probably somebody that, if he had really, really wanted to, could have played higher up, maybe for a for bigger club, no disrespect to, to Doncaster, but, you know, played slightly higher up the levels for longer. But I feel like he kind of made that decision that he was happy at Doncaster and he was he was being able to to be in the team all the time and they were you know he's talked about them matching his ambitions how important is it then for as to use to use james as an example for people to find out the things that make you happy to find the things that make you comfortable and, and secure and maybe concentrating on on those as, as using them as a bit of a foundation for maintaining your mental well-being yeah i think i mean in terms of, of- Coppinger and in terms of, you know, you get a lot of footballers like that. Oh, why didn't he move there? And why didn't he move there? And I, I think it's only now that, you know, footballers are coming out and, and speaking more regularly on, on podcasts like ours and, and, and others um, that you realise the the goings on behind the scenes where I don't really want to move anywhere else. I'm quite happy here. I'm happy here. And you realise how much value that is. And you realise how much risk is involved as well. You know, imagine moving to a new club, maybe pick up an injury, you don't get a start, you lose your place, it gets really hard to get back in. It becomes a lot more difficult. Um, so I think in terms of that, you, you know, happiness is, is key for, for footballers and being comfortable as well and knowing that you're in a place where people value you and people need you as well. Um, as I said before, Coppinger is, is one, of the, one of the footballers... He's a little bit, I mean, I don't know whether he's ever been put in the same bracket, but Ryan Giggs played for years and years, never moved anywhere. He was never going to move anywhere. Um, but the longevity 
just shows how much he loves the game. So if someone else around him is loving him back as well, it's gonna it's gonna make him so much better. He's um I think for for and like a personal level, the, the minute you find something that makes you happy, it changes so much. It's like a big weight lifted off, isn't it? You know, the minute you like crack a joke or crack a smile, a little bit of stress comes off. So I I think it's it's so key, isn't it? I think, you know, we've seen um, a number of players at Tramia stay for not, not as long as James Coppinger, but stay for a number of years. And you, you often wonder, you know, why that is. And I think people do question ambition, don't they? You know, why don't you want to be the best footballer in the world? Well, that's not really what they're out for. They're out to go and play football and play it well and enjoy it. So maybe the enjoyment of the game and the happiness of the game is a lot more than putting you know, so much pressure on yourself to go and go and reach those heights. I, I don't know. Maybe maybe it is something to do with that. But yeah, it's it's definitely key, isn't it? I mean, if you're not happy anyway, you're not going to enjoy it. And you see a lot of footballers who aren't happy bounce yeah. around clubs and particularly the youngsters um, nowadays um, just bouncing around clubs, some of them. Which I think, is, um, sorry, which I, is I was, difficult. I was just going to say, I think that, that, what you, that point you just made is really crucial about not putting... You know, if you find something that, that somewhere where you're wanted and loved and appreciated, and you're able to excel yourself, and 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 you know, it, I think there's a lot that could be said for that. That I think, as you say, a lot of the, the the sort of ills of modern day society, perhaps without wanting to get too meta about this, is that there's a lot of pressure placed on always having to, you know, you're always having to look up rather than just saying, I'm, in, I'm comfortable where I am and I'm happy with what I'm doing. And you can excel and be ambitious within the realms of what you're doing. And James said, didn't he, that Doncaster matched his ambition. They wanted to go and play in the championship. Doncaster probably, especially nowadays, is probably going to be difficult for them to compete regularly in the championship. So for them to be able to go up and get into the championship, stay up for a couple of seasons, Coppinger gets to go and play at that level that he's good enough to play at without having to go and, as you say, bounce around places, take that risk, move his family, and potentially upset his own mental health, which is something that he clearly places at the forefront of his of his decision-making. It's just a difficult... It's a difficult thing for footballers, isn't it? Because you go out of fashion so quickly. Mm. It's, it's, it's really hard. I mean, to, for James to start his career where he did and then probably almost get that like reality check and, and have to go down the leagues and, and work work better and, and, and work his way back up. You know, when he, you know, Doncaster were a club, I remember them back in the conference. So, and I remember them with Yeovil um, going head to head against each other. So, and I remember when they came into League One and they were like, you know, cheeky little upstarts, but they soon stayed there for a number of years. And I think they ended up having a few internationals in the team uh, I think Brian Stock is the one I remember um, <laughs> out of that team. And I think Notts Forest tried to sign all of them, to be honest, around that time. Because <laughs> Forest ended up Forest ended up in, in League One and didn't really know what they were doing. <laughs> so they signed everyone. They had like Grant Holt, Brian Stock, I think they had Coppinger, and it never quite worked. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it, it's... It's amazing. I mean, Doncaster, the, the team, it is amazing that, that, that they're there because they are quite small. Um, obviously, they were quite well-backed as well. But I think for Coppinger to, to have gone 17 years, I always remember that game. 
the Brentford one, was it the last day of the season? Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. And we do talk what about that in the in, in, in the quick fire. It gives us a a lovely uh, lovely little reminiscent moments about that that, what uh, I would say, that um, time. Dan is I think the fact that he took that loan spell to Forest when they were in the championship and he only played six games and then he decided to go back kind of sums up the title and, and what he was about. He, he was in League One at Doncaster in 2012. He'd just been relegated after four years in the Championship, and he felt he was a Championship player at that time, probably at the peak of his powers. Goes to Forest, he would have been looking to get into the Premier League and plays six times and thinks, I can be a Championship player and be on the bench, or I could go be Doncaster's best player and try and get back in the Championship. Yeah. And um, that year he went back to them from Forest. They actually did get promoted and they only lasted a season in the Championship. But he stayed with them then. And he, that was probably a bit of a light bulb moment for him to say, I can be at Doncaster, I can be happy, I can be playing week in, week out and probably be a bit, a bit of a bigger fish in a smaller pond or I can try my chances elsewhere. But if I'm not playing, what's the point? Yeah. And I think um, we've spoken to so many like sort of nomadic footballers, haven't we? We've had to change and upheave the lives and constantly find that next deal and have conflicts with managers and those type of things. And I don't think many players who have careers like that go on to play 800 games like Poppinger's going to surpass. So you can see the attractive nature and maybe being spending a chunk of your career a bit a, a little bit lower than where you feel you could be but to achieve so much more and maybe be a legend at one club than, than not really be well-renowned at any. I think with um, there's like a similar one, the one that comes to mind, and it's around the same area, is Billy Sharp. And obviously Sharp's had a, a number of clubs, but he's never felt, I, I, I could probably guarantee it, he's never felt more comfortable than he has at, at uh, Sheffield United. Certainly mm-hmm. it's brought the best out of him, goal scoring and, you can see it in 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 the way he is on the pitch. You know, he's thirty five and he's he's doing his best to keep them up at the moment. Um, but you know, ever since he's come back into that team, it gives him a massive lift, absolutely huge lift. Um, and maybe it is there, there are players who just fit at a certain club, just yeah. work better at a certain club, certain area, certain lifestyle. And you know, a lot of that goes down to to managers normally um, as well. So. You know, there must be, you know, you, we spoke to a few and the best ones, the be, the the players have said, you know, the best managers they've had are, are the ones who are kind of like man motivators. You don't really hear a lot of that nowadays, do you? But um, they're the ones who've, who've, who've come out with like yeah. high praise from the players we've spoken to. Yeah, the players that they kind of, the, the managers that they can relate to, that they seem to be the ones that get, yeah, get the most absolutely. out of them. Yeah, I think Billy Sharp's a, a very good example, and to be honest with you, and it's 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 just it's a nice thing to see, and you don't see it that often. And I think it's something that should be, you know, not underestimated that relationship that you can build between, you know, a player and a club. And, and I suspect for, for for James, he may go on to work with Doncaster after his career in, 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 in a different way and who better to do it really as you know he's talking about his work that he's doing for players off the pitch and you know who better to to, to teach the younger players coming through with a club like Doncaster than someone who's you know been there and seen it all at all the levels that they can play at for them. Um chaps I'm gonna I'm gonna wrap us up there where we're um rapidly approaching waffling time or I certainly am. Um which, to be honest, it normally comes quite quite early on. I'm quite impressed I got that far. Um, so I'm just going to say I'm going to say thanks to you both for your time, as per usual. It's always uh, 
it's always great to have these check-ins, you know, just to just to say hello, have a little chat, you know. Ryan's Ryan's gone quiet. I'm, I'm, I'm all right. I'm still here. I'm listening to your waffle. Just thinking about getting some syrup to put on your waffle. Yeah, that's, that's fair enough. I, did, I genuinely didn't know where I was going with that, to be honest with you. So I'm glad you, I'm glad you chimed in. Um, right. Anyway, thank you, chaps. Thank you to our lovely listeners for listening. As usual, we have. Um, James Cobb, just quick fire to leave you with. If you have enjoyed this episode or any of our previous offerings, then if you could head over to Apple Podcasts, leave us a five-star rating and a little review, that would be delightful. Uh, our theme this week, which was for me to be happy, I need to be in the team. That's what we came up with. If you've found any themes from this episode or from any of our previous episodes, then you can email them over to us at manmarkingpodcast at gmail.com. Or you can find us on Twitter at marking underscore man. Send us your thoughts about this episode or any of the others and, and anything that, that you've picked up that, that maybe we haven't discussed. And we can see if we can discuss them on a, on a future episode. We'll be back again this Friday. We've got an episode of Under Flat Caps and Bowler Hats, which will be featuring a discussion about the former Newcastle centre forward, Huey Gallagher. So we'll look forward to that. Anthony Ryan, thanks very much for your time. We're going to leave you with... James Coppinger's quick fire. Thanks for listening. Do you prefer the Bellevue or the keep mode? Oh, what a question. Um, Bellevue pitch, but I prefer the keep more facilities. <laughs> <laughs> That's what um, Gary said to us, didn't he, Ray? Yeah, he did, yeah. We uh, we spoke with Gary Souter, who um, is obviously a Doncaster fan. He said, we asked him, does he prefer which ground did he prefer? And he said, I prefer the, the the stadium and the keep mode, yeah, but the pitch at Bellevue was lovely. Oh my that's, honestly, it was unbelievable. Um, well, that surprises me that though, because keep mode always looks like an, an absolute carpet, I I think. It is a good pitch, but it's a deso pitch, so it's like quarter synthetic and it's sand based, so it's like rock hard. Um whereas Bellevue's pitch was just like, you know, the old school turf where yeah. It's just like underfoot, soft. It's just, it's hard to describe, but um, it was always, always nice. I think it was on a good foundation, the, the Bellevue pitch. Have you ever played against someone and thought, he's not that good, him, and then had an absolute nightmare against them? I don't think I've thought that. Herman Horidison, remember who played for Portsmouth? Yeah. Um, I played against him a few times and um, thought he was a, he was questionable, but then come against him and I was like, this guy, he was nipping me, um, punching me, uh, kicking me, like literally off the ball, you know. And it got to the stage where every time I played against him, he would do exactly the same. I knew what was coming. So it's one game, I I just didn't back to him, you know. He he he'd turn around and like the ball would be it'd be gone and he'd be he'd be literally nipping me. So I just started nipping him back. Um, started doing exactly what he did to me, doing it back. Uh, at the end of the game, he come up to me and he was like. That was unbelievable. Like, he absolutely <laughs> loved it. <laughs> uh, and he was like, um, nobody ever does that. Um, and that's probably, again, probably the farthest I've, I've got to, to think in something like that. He, he makes you look like a YTS. How I just think he played through. He was about 63, didn't he? <laughs> <laughs> he was class. You know, when, when again, whenever I played against him, he was always sort of chuntering. Like, like Jimmy Bullard. I played against Jimmy for Ipswich and he just talked throughout the whole game you know like just talk rubbish throughout the whole game oh what a pass that was son 
Like, you know, like just talking throughout the whole you're thinking this guy isn't taking this seriously. A regular massage is the best thing about being a footballer. <laughs> Has somebody told you that I get regular massages? <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, for me, up until this season, I'm 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 massive on it. You know, soft tissue work is something that has kept me going to an extent whenever I've been at a club, uh, whether it be Newcastle when I was younger, all the way through Exeter, um, and to Doncaster, rubs were something that I were what well, I was I was huge on. Um, this season we've not been able to get many with with the COVID situation, but um, again, unproven soft tissue work. But for me, it's it's a must, especially at my age. So the next question, it, it was a bit of a controversial one. We interviewed him. Um... John Macken a few months back and we asked him what he gets from from the chippy what's his sort of go-to chippy tea and we we ended up on the subject of uh steak and kidney pies which he said are actually called steak and kidney puddings what is it a steak and kidney pie or a steak and kidney pudding it's a pie all day I don't know where yes. it's got pudding from yeah that's yeah. what we said we just feel like we have to run it past anyone who's from the north these days <laughs> <laughs> Steak and kidney pudding. I've never ever heard of that. Um, but John Macken, where's he from? He's Manchester ways. Yeah, that's not north. Um, <laughs> you know, like up in the northeast, it's hundred percent steak and kidney pie. Yeah, I like that. I like that we got a. Yeah, I like that. I like that we can we can team up. I'm gonna. I might message him and just say, John, listen, I've had a way with James He'll go who? <laughs> Football with the worst dress sense. Ben Whiteman. Ben Whiteman actually talking about that. Our captain came in this morning with the worst pair of shorts on you've ever seen. Um, you know, like I, I, I sort of ask him the question whether they're long shorts or short longs. Um, <laughs> they, were, they were they were by his knees. You know, I think nowadays people wear short shorts, and he was wearing these things that like had like a pleat in them down the side, and then. The short went over his knees, and honestly, it was it was offending. It was, it was offensive. It was it was it was so bad. And a few of the lads got on him like he, he got a bit of stick. He should have um, should have asked him if his shoes were going to invite his shorts down for dinner. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be my next one. When he wears them again, I'll do that. If you had the choice, would you rather fight a duck that was the size of a Tyrannosaurus Rex or fifty Tyrannosaurus Rexes that were the size of ducks? <laughs> oh my god. Um go with the fifty. You gonna go fifty? Yeah, I think I've got the fifty. <laughs> I think I can I think I can deal with the fifty, you know, one big duck. Um it's not I'm not I'm I'm yeah, I'm, that's scaring me a little bit, but <laughs> I can do I, you know, I, I reckon you could kick a few of them when <laughs> you pinging them. No. Yeah. Just <laughs> I can't believe I've got that thought in my head. If I'm being honest, who <laughs> if you had the um, if you had the really big one, you'd be quacking your pants, wouldn't you? Oh, mate, move on. That's terrible. Um, James, what was the best moments of your uh, uh, of your playing career so far? That goal at Brentford on the last day of the season after being on loan at Forest, um, that eventually won us the league. It was unbelievable. You know, you couldn't write it. I actually. Again, you can. I'm not crazy, but I sort of visualised me scoring the winner. I remember rooming with Dean Furman at the time, and we spoke about it because we knew that all we needed was a draw. 
Um, and I was like, somebody tomorrow could be absolutely be a hero, you know, if they score the winner. And like, obviously, I do a lot of visualization anyway, but um, I sort of visualize scoring the winner. And then in the last minute, they got a penalty. And I was like, oh my God. Um, another three weeks in in the playoffs and he hit the bar and then it went to Billy Painter and I ran the full length of the pitch and he squared it and then like you say I I took a touch tapped it in and we won the league and I don't think there's anything that can surpass that I mean obviously played at Wembley beat Leeds in in the playoff final um, and had some really good moments in the Millennium Stadium won the 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 Johnson's Paint Trophy and then Captain Doncaster at a promotion. But the one that stands out for me is that is that Brentford. I remember um that was the, that because you scored that goal to win that game. And then I didn't I think it was like a week or two later was when Deeney scored the, yeah. the goal against Leicester. And it was the, like the same sort of um scenario, wasn't it? They missed the knockout missed the penalty and then uh Wofford went up the other end. And because I, I watched I, I remember I watched that obviously watched the, the Leicester the Watford game. But I remember watching uh, Gillette Soccer Saturday when when your goal went in. Because didn't um, I think Ian Hume was playing for you at the time? Was that right? Yeah, Hume, Hume was class. Yeah. I think yeah. he, I, he he swiveled it round and got fouled on the halfway line, and then Painter went off with it. Somebody went off. Yeah, and got, yeah. Do you remember it was just carnage every week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was class. To be fair, like um, Hume was quality that year. We had a we had a hell of a team. Um, and yeah, the, I remember the week after uh, I watched it the other day actually when Deeney scored, and um, yeah, it was again, it's it's something that as a footballer you sort of dream of, you know, scoring a winner in the last last kick of the game to win the league. It's like how can you <laughs> how can you top that? And if that penalty went in, you would have fell into the playoffs, wouldn't you? Yeah, was it that yeah. Tight? yeah. And he Crazy. shouldn't have been taking the penalty. So he was he wasn't even on penalties. So he was arguing with the lad who was who was on penalties at the time, who ended up running back with me. Um and yeah, he was on loan at the time. I can't remember where he was from, but Olympia, yeah. I think. Was it? Yeah. yeah. He would because he's because obviously Fulham and Brentford are rivals, aren't they? So <laughs> Oh my god. Yeah, the season after, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we had Harry Forrester came to us. He was at Brentford at the time and he was telling us after the game, like the manager and the players, they were just gone completely. If you watch, I've got an unbelievable picture of me, me tapping the ball in the net and then it's like a, a shot all the way down the pitch and you've got 10 of their lads just on, on, the the knee, on, the, on the knees, yeah, on the knees in our penalty box. Um, Am I right I, in I, thinking you threw your top in the crowd not to get it back, or did somebody do that? <laughs> yeah, I did, yeah. <laughs> um, and, and I sort of I threw my top in the crowd, which I can't believe to this day I did. I would never, I don't know why I even thought about doing that. And then I ended up putting Kyle Bennett's top on. And then after I did an interview with Sky and I said, look, whoever's got that top, I, I would appreciate it if you can give me it back um, as a memento. And there's some guy who got it and he contacted the club and we give him a replica shirt and I went to give him it and you should have seen his face. Like, it was like I was sort of taking his dog off him. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he was absolutely devastated. Um, but obviously I've got it framed and it's it's up, up in the house. And um, yeah, it's it, again... It was such a monumental occasion and, and, and something that will always stick with me forever. Doncaster Rovers protest 
Brentford have gone absolutely bananas. What a nervous moment this is for Trotter. He steps up, he's hit the bar. He's hit the crossbar and he's missed it. There's a right all scramble in the six-yard box and it's cleared away by Doncaster and it's cleared away to the halfway line and the break is on and Billy Painter's on the edge of the penalty area and he can win promotion. Coppinger puts it into the empty net and Doncaster have won promotion to the championship. The flares go off in the away end. What drama. Penalty missed at one end. Doncaster go to the other. Coppinger has won it.